Amen. All right, we're there in Philippians chapter number three. And of course, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through this series called Rejoice. And it really is a verse by verse study through the book of Philippians. I don't do it a lot on Sunday mornings where we do a book study. Usually this is more something we do on a Wednesday night where we would go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book. But every once in a while, it's good to change things up a little bit. And of course, we're doing that on Wednesday nights through the book of Job. And uh, we find ourselves here in Philippians chapter number three, as we've been making our way through this book. And of course, I've told you every, every week we've been in this series. And of course, we took a break from this last week because of the Red Hot Preaching Conference. But this book is about joy. The word joy is found throughout the book, and the word rejoice is found throughout the book. It's a book about joy, and it's a book about Jesus, and it's really a book about the joy that can be found in Jesus. And I want to point out to you, there's some very specific things that the Apostle Paul begins to delve in this chapter, but just by way of introduction, let me uh, point out some basic kind of reminder things that he talks about here in verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And of course, we know that's the theme of the book about finding our joy in Christ, rejoicing in the Lord. Then he says this. He says, To write the same thing to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And the Apostle Paul is about to begin to expound on some things that he's already taught them, some things that he's already explained to them. And he gives this little disclaimer. He says, to write the same thing to you, to me indeed is not grievous. He said, it's not difficult for me to write the same thing to you, but for you it is safe. Now keep your place there in Philippians chapter 3. That's our text for this morning, of course. And go with me if you would to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. You're there in Philippians. You have Colossians, 1 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter number 4. And what you'll notice is in the letters of the Apostle Paul, if you read Paul's epistles, you'll notice that he repeats himself a lot. And he's reminding the different churches of a lot of the similar things. In fact, there are some chapters in his epistles that seem almost word for word uh, the same thing. And when he talks about marriage, he talks about wives submitting and husbands uh, uh, being reverence. And, and, and he talks about that in Colossians. He talks about that in uh, Ephesians. And throughout his uh, letters, you'll find these same themes that he brings over and over. And this is what he's talking about when he says here in Philippians 3.1, to write the same thing to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And, you know, one of our jobs as preachers, as pastors, or as men of God is to uh, remind people. It's not only to teach people, but it's to remind people the things that they've already been taught. Notice there in First Timothy chapter 4, here we have Paul teaching Timothy. Timothy is a young uh, preacher that he's training uh, for the ministry or helping in the ministry. Notice what Paul tells Timothy. He says, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Our job as teachers, good teachers are repetitive. Now, when I say repetitive, I don't mean that in one sermon we should just repeat ourselves over and over again. I think it's good to review things. We should review things by putting it in different ways, using different illustrations, different thoughts. But as you come to a church, and a church like Verity Baptist Church, over the years you'll find that you may learn some new things as we travel through the books of the Bible, but a lot of times you're just being reminded of the same things. You know, we as Christians need to be reminded of the things that we already know. We need to be reminded that, hey, you're supposed to go soul winning. 
We need to be reminded that you're supposed to be reading your Bible. We need to be reminded uh, about living a separated life. There are some things that it is our job to just remind people of. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Go to 2 Peter, if you would. You're there in 1 Timothy. you got Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. I often joke with guys that I'm training uh, in, in teaching and preaching, and it's the, this idea that our job is to put a new flavor on an old truth. And of course, I'm not talking about uh, bringing in worldliness or anything like that, but oftentimes it is our job to take this eternal Word of God and to try to dress it up as we preach, try to dress it up in a way that uh, is new or that is different. That's why I like to preach these sermon series, and we'll go through a series and, 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 and look at things through a certain, uh, a, a, a certain lens. You say, why? Because uh, my job is to remind you of the same thing over and over and over again. And I often joke with guys and I say, look, David always kills Goliath. Jesus always resurrects from the grave. You know, Joseph always gets promoted. Uh, and when you read the Bible, the same things happen over and over again. But our job is to teach them and preach them in such a way that it's new and it's relevant. But our job is to help people to remember. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 12. He says, Wherefore, wherefore I will not be negligent, to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in the tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. See, it's our job to put you in remembrance, to write the same thing to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, Paul said, but for you, it is safe. Now, there's a few layers to this, and this is, I'm not preaching about this this morning. In fact, you go back to Philippians if you would, but let me just explain this. There's a few layers to this. One of the reasons that we must put people in remembrance of things is because a growing church is always in transition. We always have newer people coming in, new converts, and some of the things that you are aware of that you know, they may not know. So don't, don't ever look at a sermon and, and, and think, oh, I already know what he's going to say. I already know what he's going to preach. I already know everything about that. First of all, every time the Word of God is open, you can learn something new. But even if you already know everything, which I doubt you do, it's good to be reminded. It's good to be put in remembrance. It's good to be uh, uh, reminded of the things that we are learning. The Bible says, despise not prophesying. We should never despise the preaching of the Word of God. We should never think, oh, I don't need that. Look, you need, every time the Bible is open, you need it. Every time the Word of God is open, uh, you need it. By the way, this is one of the reasons why in-person church services are better than watching online. You say, you say why, why is that? Here's why. Because watching online, you just scroll and pick whatever, you know, sermons you like. You, you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, oftentimes the sermons you like are not the sermons you need. And there's something about showing up to church on a Sunday morning, showing up to church on Sunday night, showing up to church on a Wednesday night, when you can't put the preacher on pause, you can't hit an X and make him go away, when he gets up and preaches the Word of God, you may not, it may not be what you like, but it may be what you need. So it is our job to put you in remembrance. Paul says to write the same thing to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you, it is safe. Then he says this in verse 2. He says, beware of dogs. 
Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now, I'm going to come back to this verse and really develop it and break it down in a different sermon. In a couple of weeks, we're going to come back to Philippians 3, 2, and I'm going to break this uh, down for you. So I'm not going to do it this morning, but I do want to uh, just show you that the Apostle Paul here begins to talk about the enemies of the cross of Christ. He talks about different enemies that we should be aware of or beware of. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and those are words that represent different things. Then he says this, beware of the concision. The word concision means cutting or cutting off. And the reference there is to circumcision. He talks about that in the next verse. And what he's talking about, he's talking about the Jews. And of course, if you've read the book of Acts, you know that the biggest enemy of the New Testament church in the first century were the Jews. It was the Jews, the Bible tells us, who put Jesus to death. It was the Jews who were bringing about persecution against the New Testament church. It was the Jews that were the biggest enemy of the cause of Christ. And here Paul says, beware of the concision. He says, those people that talk about their circumcision and the fact that they're circumcised and that they're quote-unquote God's people because of their circumcision, he says, beware of the concision. Then he says this in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Today, you know, uh, there, there's, there's a big fight over what the Bible teaches about the Jews. Are the Jews God's chosen people? In our position here at Verity Baptist Church, we believe in what people would refer to as replacement theology. You say, you know, uh, um, we, we, what does that mean? That means that we believe that uh, New Testament Christianity has replaced uh, Israel as God's people today. It's replacement theology. And people say, oh, well, uh, you, you must not be educated. You must have not gone to Bible college. You need to learn dispensationalism. Uh, you know, you're not aware of these things. Well, apparently, neither was the Apostle Paul. Notice what he says. Beware of God, uh, dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision, referring to the Jews. Then he says, for we are the circumcision. He says, don't, don't beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision. Keep in mind, he's talking to the church at Philippi, which is a, 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 a city in, in Greece. He's talking to a bunch of Gentiles, and he says, there's a concision, but he says, we are the circumcision. That sounds like replacement theology. I mean, you say, oh, well, you guys are anti-Semitic. It's funny how you preach against a false religion, and people call you racist. Look, we're not anti the people that are Jewish people, but we're going to tell you this. The Bible says that they're not saved. They've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is an antichrist but he that denied that Jesus is the Christ? He's antichrist is what the Bible says. The Bible says, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit. He says, in, uh, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. The Bible teaches that uh, what, what draws us close to God is Jesus Christ. The blessings of Abraham fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And here the Apostle Paul says, hey, we are, talking to a bunch of Gentile Greeks in Philippi, he says, we are the circumcision." which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And, you know, I, I, won't, I won't spend a lot of time on that this morning. We'll, 
but I, I do want to tell you, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, and I'd encourage you to be back with us tonight as we uh, delve into that uh, a little bit. Now, I want you to notice verse number four. In the Apostle Paul, he, he begins to delve into what he's going to deal with in this passage that we're dealing with, the, dealing with this morning. And in this passage, there's really kind of two sections or two categories. And for those of you taking notes, and I'd encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write some things down. He begins by talking about his old confidence, Paul's old confidence, the things that he put his confidence in, the things that he was proud of. It's his old confidence, the things that he would uh, pride himself uh, on. Notice verse 4, he says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Now remember, because he's talking about the concision, the circumcision, and, he say, and, and in reference to them, he says, I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. So the Apostle Paul says, look, if, if anybody thinks that they live their life in such a way where they could have confidence in their own ability, their own uh, performance, their own uh, flesh. He said, he said, I have a pretty good resume. In fact, he goes on to give us his resume, and Paul is telling us what he used to have confidence in, his old confidence. Notice there, that I might also have confidence in the flesh. He says, he might trust in the flesh, I more. He says, these are the things that I used to pride myself on. These are the things that I used to uh, be uh, brag about, uh, boast about, that I was very proud of, the things that I put my confidence in. He, 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 he gives us his Resume. You say, what are those things that he had his confidence in? Well, notice verse 5. There's six things that the Apostle Paul points out for us in this, uh, in this passage. Things that he put his confidence in, things he was proud of, things that he were a source of pride for him. The first one is Paul's heredity. Notice verse 5 there. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He says, I came from the stock of Israel. He says, uh, my heredity was something that I was proud of. The word heredity deals with a person's ancestry, uh, which is their family or ethnic descent. He says, I came from the stock of Israel. He said, if, if anybody had anything to be proud of, he said, I more. If anybody had anything to be confident in, he said, I more. You say, why, Paul? Why were you confident in your heredity? He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. He says, of the stock of Israel. So he says, there was things that I had confidence in. What were they? Paul would say, my heredity. But then I want you to notice, secondly, not only was Paul confident in his heredity, but he was also confident in his nobility. Notice verse 5 again. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. Then he adds this to it. He says, not only was I of the stock of Israel, he says, but I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Notice the nobility, the, the, the pride that he takes in the fact that he can identify the, pride, the, 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 the tribe that he was from. Nobility means a group of people belonging to a higher class or rank. See, the tribe of Benjamin was a special tribe, and Paul is sure to identify for us that he was of the tribe 
of Benjamin. You say, what's so special about the tribe of Benjamin? Well, there's a few things. First of all, it was the tribe of Benjamin that gave the nation of Israel their first king. Remember, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And if you remember, the apostle Paul, before his name was changed, was Saul. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Benjamite of the same tribe that the first king of Israel came out of, which was also named Saul. In fact, it's very likely that Saul of Tarsus in the New Testament was named after the King Saul of the Old Testament. And he points out the fact that he comes from this noble tribe, the tribe that gave the first uh, king of Israel. And people might say, yeah, but then they lost it. And then David became king. And David became of the tribe of, uh, came from the tribe of Judah. That's true. But you will also take note of the fact that when there was a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel, when there was a split between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, all of the tribes left the tribe of Judah except for the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the tribe that stayed loyal to Judah. You say, why is that special? Here's why it's special. The northern kingdom of Israel ended up going into sin. The Assyrians came in and completely ruined their genealogy. They intermingled together. That group of people became known in the New Testament as the Samaritans. And as a result, those tribes were lost. See, people from the northern kingdom of Israel at the time of Paul were not able to say, I'm of the tribe of fill in the blank because nobody really knew what tribe they were from because those tribes had been intermingled but the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin had been preserved so it was this rare thing for Paul to say I'm not only a Hebrew I can tell you what tribe I'm from I'm of the tribe of Benjamin my name is Saul. I was named after the first king of Israel. See, Paul took great pride in his heredity, but he also took pride in his nobility. Why don't you notice, thirdly, he took pride in his pedigree. Look at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he says this. Then he adds to his resume, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul's pedigree. His background, the word pedigree means the background of a person as conferring distinction or quality. See, Paul says, he, he says, not only was I a stock of, he, uh, 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 of the stock of Israel, not only was I of the tribe of Benjamin, but he says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You say, what does that mean? Well, during the ancient world, there was what you would call, what would refer to in the ancient world as Hellenistic Jews. The, I, you say, what's a Hellenistic Jew? It, it was a Jew who lived in, grew up in, was born into possibly, and had accepted the Greek culture. If you remember, as Paul travels uh, throughout uh, the, uh, Europe and throughout the Mediterranean, he goes to all these different cities in Gentile lands, but there's these groups of Jews there. He would often go to the synagogue and try to preach the gospel to the Jews. See, there were all these Jews that lived in the Greek culture. If you remember, in Acts chapter 2, the Bible tells us that all these Hellenistic Jews came from all over the world to uh, Jerusalem to worship on the day of Pentecost. See, there were all these Jews that were living 
as Greeks. They were called Hellenistic Jews, and that was the common Jew. They lived in a Greek culture. They spoke Greek. They may, uh, often were intermarried into uh, Greek ethnicity. They grew up as Greeks, and they lived as Greeks, and they uh, 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 had accepted the Greek culture, and Judaism was a religion that they would uh, travel for and do certain things for, but they were Hellenistic Jews. Paul would say, that was not me. He said, not only was I of the stock of Israel in the first century, but he would also say, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. See, uh, Paul was raised like a Hebrew in a Greek culture. He was not raised like a Greek being a descendant of the Jews. He uh, was raised in this religious, Judaistic, zealous environment. And Paul was very proud of it. He was proud of his heredity. He was proud of his nobility. He was proud of his pedigree. But it was more than that. He was also proud of his piety. Notice verse 5 again. Notice his resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he says this, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Piety means the quality of being religious or extremely serious about your religion. Paul says, not only was I a Jew of the nation of Israel, of the stock of Israel, not only was I of the tribe of Benjamin, not only was I a Hebrew of the Hebrew, he says, when it comes to piety, when it comes to my religion, he says, as touching the law of Pharisee. He says, I was of the sect of the strictest. The Pharisees were known as the most strict, the most serious, the most uh, uh, into what they believed. And Paul said, look, I was the best of the best of the best when it came to his religion. He was proud of his heredity and his nobility, his pedigree, his piety. But I want you to notice Paul was also proud of his intensity. Look at verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He said, not only was I pious, he said, I was intense. He said, I really believe what I believe. He said, in fact, I believe this so much that I had zeal behind it. He said, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He said, no, I don't just stand back and watch this Christian religion take over uh, 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 the, the land that I live. He said, I fought against it. He said, I persecuted Christianity. I persecuted the church. And he said, and I was very proud of it. Notice he was proud of his heredity his nobility, his pedigree, his piety, his insensity, but he was also very proud of his morality. Look at verse 6 again. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, then he says this, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul was a moral man. Morality is defined as values and principles of conduct regarding right and wrong. He says, I wasn't a hypocrite. He says, as touching righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. He said, you could have followed me. You could have watched my life, and you would have never found anything that I did wrong. He said, I was a very moral man. He said, I was proud of my morality, and I was proud of my intensity. He says, I was proud of my piety. He said, I was proud of my pedigree. He says, I was proud of my nobility. He says, I was proud of my heredity. And then in verse 7, he makes this very dramatic statement. He says, but what things were gained. I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul often, I'll point it out to you, would often use these accounting terms in his letters. And here we see one of them. We'll see another one here in a minute. 
He says, but what things were gain? The word gain is an accounting term. It means profit or advantage. When you run a business, when you're doing your accounting and you look at what has came in financially and you subtract what it costs to make that revenue and what you have left over when it is a plus, uh, when, it is, uh, uh, when, when you're not uh, in the negative, that's a gain, that's a profit. That means you're winning. Paul says, he said, I was winning. He said, if life was a race of, of bragging and showing off, it's almost like the Apostle Paul might have lived in the Facebook age. If life was meant to be bragged about and show off about, to tell people about, well, look where I came from, and look what school I went to, and look how much money I make, and look at the things I have. He said, he said, I was winning. But then he says this, but what things were gained to me, he says, those I counted loss. The word loss, again, in accounting term, means detriment, disadvantage, Deprivation. It means to go negative. When you have a loss, it means that you spent more money than you brought in. You're not winning. It's not going well. He says, the things that were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He says, yea, doubtless, and I, notice the accounting term, count. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He says, I count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count, notice the accounting terms, do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. See that word dung? The Apostle Paul is being very offensive here. Being very extreme. He says, you think you got something to show off about? He says, I have more. You want to hear something to brag about? Let me tell you about my heredity and my nobility and my pedigree and my piety and my intensity and my morality. He said, if, I had, if there was anybody that could boast of brag, it was me. But he says, today, he says, today I count those things but dung. The word dung means excrement from an animal. It is manure. He says, to me, it has the value of animal poop. Amen. He says, I count those things but dung. Go to Ecclesiastes if you would. Keep your place there in Philippians. Go with me to Ecclesiastes. In the Old Testament, if you open your Bible just right in the center, you're more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. Right after Psalms, you have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. See, Paul begins by talking to us about his old confidence. The things that he took pride in, his old pride. And Paul in the first century is no different than Christians in the 21st century and no different than Solomon in the ancient world we're about to look at. There have always been these things that human beings take pride in. Paul gave us his six. Heredity, nobility, pedigree, piety, intensity, morality. Let me quickly show you Solomon's six. Solomon had six things that he took pride in as well. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with myrrh. You see the word myrrh, it means to uh, have uh, laughter or to have a good time. He says, I will prove thee with myrrh. Therefore, notice what he says, enjoy pleasure and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of myrrh. What doeth it? 
Solomon here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is telling us about all his successes, all the things he put his confidence in, all the things that brought pride to him, all the things that he would boast and brag about if he was on Facebook and social media. And Paul begins, and, and Solomon begins by telling us here that if there was something that he put confidence in, it was pleasure. He said if there was something that he had, it was myrrh. He told himself to enjoy pleasure. He said of lobster it is mad, and of myrrh what doeth it? And then I want you to notice in verse 3, he, he brags not only about the pleasure and his confidence in his pleasure, but then he talks about alcohol. Look at verse 3. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine. Let me explain something to you. There's no new thing under the sun. Isn't this exactly, I'm not on Facebook, but isn't this exactly what you see on Facebook today? People boasting and bragging, look where I'm at. I'm having such a great time. Look at me with my alcohol. Look at me with my wine bottle. Look how great my life is. So Paul gave us, see, Paul grew up in a strictly Hebrew culture, and he was winning in his realm of life. That had to do with nobility and piety and morality. Solomon was a politician. He tells us what success looked like in his life. Success was pleasure. It was alcohol. He said, I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. He said, I gave myself to wine. And by the way, today I would add that to that not only alcohol, but drugs. Same thing. Yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should uh, do under the heaven all uh, the days of their life. Notice there's four. Solomon tells us what he gave himself to. He gave himself to pleasure. He gave himself to alcohol. He gave himself to possessions. Look at verse 4. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them all of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in mine house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. Paul said, I had a lot, uh, Solomon says, I had a lot of stuff. I had great works, I had houses, I had vineyards, I had gardens, I had orchards, I had servants, I had maidens, I had great possessions, he says. Isn't that what people chase today? The bigger house, the nicer car, the brand name clothes, the things they think will bring them happiness. Then Solomon said, I chased money. Look at verse 8. I gathered me also silver and gold and peculiar treasure of kings and of provinces. He talks about the fact that he uh, 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 chased entertainment. He says, I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of man as musical instruments and that of all sorts. And look, none of these things in and of themselves, except for alcohol, <laughs> are bad. Alcohol is bad all the time, period. Amen. No matter how much you drink of it, it's bad. But you know, there's nothing wrong with having a good time from time to time. There's nothing wrong with having nice possessions if God blesses you with that. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's something wrong with uh, allowing money to have you. The love of money is the root of all evil. But there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of entertainment to distract yourself from time to time. There's nothing wrong with these things. Notice, uh, Solomon talks about the fact that he had status. Look at verse 9. 
So I was great and increased more than all that were before me. In Jerusalem also my wisdom remained in me. He said, I had success. I had status. I had all the things that the world would call gain. See, Paul says the same thing. You say, but Paul's list and, 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 and Solomon's list look different. That's because they're, they're in, in two different cultures. They're, they're in two different cultures. You say, but they were both uh, Hebrews and Israelites. But look, even in a nation, uh, it, it, success is often determined by the people you hang around with. You go live in Texas and success looks like a big hat with a lot of property and, a, and cattle. You go to California and success looks like a beachfront home uh, with, you know, skinny jeans and flip-flops. <laughs> success looks different in different places, but it's all the same thing. It's pride. It's all the same thing. It's an accumulation of that which is temporal. Paul says, if anybody had something to be confident about, it was me. He said, in fact, let me tell you about my old confidence, the things I put my confidence in, the things that I had my pride and joy in, the things that I was proud about. He said, I, I, if anybody was winning at life, it was me, Paul would say. So we see, first of all, Paul's old confidence, his pride. I want you to notice, secondly, this morning, we see Paul's new computation. You say, what does that mean, Computation means to compute, to count, to calculate. Why don't you notice this is the emphasis that Paul gives us in verse 8. He says, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the, uh, the loss of all things, and do, notice, count them but dung that I may win Christ. See, Paul said, I learned to count. He said, I learned to do new calculations. I learned to do, to, I began to uh, uh, have a new computation. I began, here's what he's saying. He said, I used to have pride. Now I have a new perspective. I used to count things in a certain way. I thought that certain thing, I thought that money, I thought that possessions, I thought that education, I thought there were certain things that I had to have to be happy, to be fulfilled. He said, but then I learned to count. I got a new computation. I got a new calculation. I got a new perspective. Paul had a new way of seeing things, new way of measuring success. You say, what was his new measure to success? I want you to notice that this is probably the most important phrase in this passage. And if you don't mind writing in your Bible, I'd like you to underline it or circle it or highlight it in your Bible. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. I want you to notice the last little phrase he says there. That... I may win Christ. Amen. He said that I may win Christ. You say, what's the goal, Paul? He says the goal is God. Amen. We're going to talk about it more next week. He says, I press toward the mark for the price of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says, the, the, the new goal, he says, see, I learned to count. I began to count in a different way. I got some new calculations. And he said, I realized, he said, I, I thought I was winning. He said, but I realized I was losing. He said, in fact, I realized that to really win, you must win Christ. Amen. He said, I count those things, but laws, he said, I count them done. Amen. 
that I may win Christ. He said, I found out that Christ was more important. He said, I found out that Christ was more fulfilling. And then Paul begins to tell us the things that he gained in Christ. What did he gain? The first thing he mentions is the righteousness of Christ. We would call that salvation. Look at verse 9. He said in verse 8 that I may win Christ, and then he says in verse 9, and be found in him. That's a new position. Do you know that if you're saved this morning, you're saved because you're in Christ? At the time of your judgment, when you stand before God, you don't want to stand before God on your own. You want to stand before God clothed in His righteousness found in Christ. I don't want to stand before God and have God judge me. I want to be hidden in Christ. He said that I uh, uh, and be found in Him. Notice what he says. You say, what does that mean? He says, not having mine own righteousness. Now keep in mind, he just got done telling us according to righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. He said, I was pretty good. He said, I was a pretty good uh, religious individual. I was a Pharisee. I was as religious as you can get. But then I found that that was lost. He says, in fact, there's the righteousness of Christ. He says, that's gain. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God. How do you get it? By faith. Just yesterday, my wife and uh, Miss Ariel were out uh, soul winning and trying to give the gospel to this arrogant lady. And she's arguing with them about, you know, they're saying, hey, salvation's free. You don't have to earn it. You have to work for it. It's a free gift. And she's like, no, no, no. You have to live a good life. You have to live a good life. And she was just arguing with them. It got to the point where they just had to walk away. But it was funny, the funny thing is that as they walked away, she kept the door open. She had a little, like, one-year-old baby there. And she's, like, preaching at her one-year-old. You must live a good life or you're going to go to hell. And, you know, the little baby's like, goo, goo, gaga, you know, just. But look, this is what false religion, look, people often say to us, like, well, how do you know your religion is the right religion out of all the religions? Well, here's the thing. There's really only two religions. Every other religion teaches the same thing. You have to live a good life. You have to keep the law. You have to earn your way to heaven. They all teach the same thing. Paul said, I found something new. I found something different. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You say, Paul, what did you lose? See, here's what you need to understand. Paul lost something so that he could gain something. He said, I had all these things, but I counted them lost. I counted them dung. You say, why? That I might win Christ. See, here's what Paul understood. Paul said, I can't keep my old religion and Jesus. I can't keep the law, which is the righteousness, which is of the law, and have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, Paul later would say to us, if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. He would say, and if it's of grace and it is no more work, otherwise uh, work is no more work. He says, look, if it's free, you can't earn it. If it's a gift, you can't pay for it. You can't have it both ways. Right. He says, so I counted all my works as loss, that I might gain the righteousness of Christ. He said that I might have salvation. Go to Matthew, if you would, just real quickly. Keep your place there in Philippians. Matthew chapter 16, first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 16. You know what the world's chasing? All the same things Paul and Solomon and the whole world has always been chasing. Pleasure, comfort, 
status, money, success, fame. They've all been chasing the same thing. Matthew 16, 26, you know the verse, but let's look at it together. Jesus said, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Paul said, I had it all. He said, when it came to my culture, when it came to my little world and my circle of friends, I was a rock star. I was a superstar. It didn't get any bigger than Paul, Saul. He says, but I gave it up. He said, I counted it loss. He said, I counted dung that I might win Christ. You say, when it comes to salvation, do we have to give something up to be saved? You don't have to give anything up to be saved, but you do have to give up your trust in your own works if you're going to be saved. You do have to give up your trust in your own religion if you're going to be saved. You do have to repent of unbelief if you're going to be saved. Paul said, I had all these things, I gave them up. And it's almost like he knows the Philippians would ask, well, what did you gain, Paul? And Paul said, well, first of all, let me tell you something. I gained the righteousness of Christ. We call that salvation. Then he says, but that's not all. Look at Philippians 3, look at verse 10. He said, not only did I I gain the righteousness of Christ, but he said, I also gained fellowship with Christ. We call that sanctification. Look at verse 10. I love these words. He says, that I may know him. That I may know him. See, Paul said, there's a new goal in my life. There's a new purpose to my life that I may win Christ. See, God is now the goal. Money's not the goal. Possessions are not the goal. Nice things are not the goal. Nice clothes is not the goal. Fame is not the goal. Being a TikTok superstar is not the goal anymore. He says, I got a new goal. He says, what is it? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to see this. He says that I may know him. And I think every Christian would say, do you want to know Jesus? I mean, really know. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about fellowship with Christ, get to know him. I think every Christian would say, well, yeah, of course, I'd like to fellowship with Christ. Well, here's the thing. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And then he says this, and the fellowship. You want to fellowship with Jesus? I'm asking you. Don't, don't answer out loud. I'm asking you, do you want to fellowship with Jesus? You ought to ask yourself that question. Because it comes with a price. And the fellowship. He said that I may know him. I want to know him. How do you get to know him? And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable unto his death. See, fellowship comes through suffering. You know that suffering makes your relationship with God deeper and full? In fact, go, to, go back to Ecclesiastes if you would. In fact, suffering makes your relationship with anybody deeper and full. Did you know that? You say, you don't, if you don't believe me, ask, ask a veteran that came back from active war. Ask a veteran that came back from being in active warfare where he was with a group of guys and they fought together and, and, they, and they survived together and they, had, and they saw their friends die. There's something about suffering that binds people together. In the military, they call them a band of brothers. And here Paul says, 
I wanted to know Christ. But when I got to know Christ, I got to know him through suffering. See, it is suffering. It is suffering that allows us to have a deeper, fuller relationship. The the truth of the matter is this. The trouble-free life is a shallow life. The comfortable life, the convenient life, I'm not trying to offend you, but let me just help you out a little bit. Convenience is ruining you. Comfort, comfort and ease is probably one of the worst things that you could provide for your children. You're destroying them. The trouble-free life is a shallow life. Paul says, I wanted to know Christ. So I got to know him through suffering and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Here's what I know. I know that you don't pray harder than when you're in trouble. When things aren't going well, that's when we really get to know God through prayer. Ecclesiastes 7, look at verse 2. Notice what Solomon said. Remember the guy who said, hey, I... I, I, I pursued wealth and women and wine. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2, he says, It is better. He says, It is better. He says, If you have a choice to pick one, uh, one or the other, he said, Let me tell you what it would be better. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. When you mourn, you think more about your life and the impact of your life than when you go to a party. That's what he's saying. At funerals, we all contemplate our death. At weddings, we don't. He said, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness, don't miss this, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. See, suffering makes our relationship with God and anyone else that we suffer with deeper and full. You know what convenience does? It it makes you shallow and empty. Remember, remember Solomon? Go, go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Remember all the things he chased? Pleasure, verses 1 and 2. Alcohol, verse 3. Possessions, verses 4 through 7. Money, verse 8. Entertainment, verse 8. Status, verse 9. All those things that he chased, all those things that he thought would bring him happiness, would make him feel fulfilled. How did they leave him? Verse 10. That whatsoever mine eye desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Look at verse 17. You say, Solomon, how did it leave you? He says, therefore, I hated life. Really? (laughs) He says, I had anything and everything I wanted. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept them. He said, I kept not from them. Well, Solomon, you must have been the happiest guy on earth. He said, no, actually, I hated life. 
Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity. The word vanity means empty and vexation. Vexation means to bring trouble or affliction. He says it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. And if you don't believe Solomon, just ask the most famous rock star or movie star that killed themselves this week. Or killed themselves through drugs and alcohol. If they're so happy, why are they trying to ruin their lives through drug and alcohol and forget everything? That, if, they, if, if, if their life is so fulfilled, why are they killing themselves all the time? See, fellowship is heightened through suffering. Paul says, Paul says, I gave those things up so that I could gain. Gain what, Paul? Righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Gain what, Paul? Fellowship with Christ. Then he says this. Go back to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 10. He said, not only did I gain the righteousness of Christ, not only did I gain fellowship with Christ, he said, but I also will one day gain glory like Christ. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You say, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Paul says, I realize that there's more to this life than this life. He says, I realize that there's more to life than this life. There's another life. There's an afterlife. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. See, remember Paul told us, Paul said, I learned to count. I got a new calculator. I, I, I made new calculations. And I realized that I was wasting my life. Go to Romans. Romans chapter 8, if you would. If you go backwards, you got Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, 2nd and 1st Corinthians, Romans. Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, 2nd and 1st Corinthians, Romans. Romans chapter 8. Remember Paul the accountant? In Romans 8, he uses an accounting calcul- uh, uh, term again. He said, what are you gaining, Paul? He said, I'm gaining the righteousness of Christ, salvation. What are you gaining, Paul? He said, I'm gaining fellowship with Christ, sanctification. You say, what are you gaining, Paul? He says, I'm gaining glory like Christ. That's glorification. That's the glory that we will one day have in heaven. See, when you begin to live life with eternity in view, you'll begin to see things differently. When you begin to live life as if there's more to this life, you'll begin to count different. Your calculations will begin to add up different. The things you used to value, you'll no longer value. Here's how Paul said it in Romans 8, verse 17. He says, and if children, then heirs. Oh, Paul, you're covetous. You're, you're all about the, you're, you're going to get some sort of a, 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 a heir. You know, you're going to get money. He said, well, my reward is not on this earth. And if children, then heirs. He's talking about the fact that we're children of God. He says, heirs of God and no join heirs with Christ. He says, if so be that we, don't miss it, suffer with him, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. He says, for I reckon. There's Paul the accountant. The word reckon. Is not just a southern hick term. <laughs> the word reckon 
is an accounting term. It means to count or calculate, to compute. He says, for I reckon. He says, when I consider the fact that we may be also glorified together with God, it causes me to see things differently. It causes me to count things differently. It causes me to calculate things differently. He says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Here's what he says. Worldly people value the things of this world and not the things of the next world. God's people should value the things of the next world and count the things of this world loss, dung, of no value. Go to Colossians, if you would. Colossians chapter number three. If you kept your place in Philippians, right next to Philippians, you have the book of Colossians. I'm going to show you a couple of verses in Colossians and Philippians, and we'll finish up. Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 1. Are you living for this life or the next life? Are you living to gain in this world or in the next? In Colossians 3, Paul puts it this way. He says, if ye then be risen with Christ. Are we risen with Christ yet? Not yet, but he's saying, look, it's a sure thing. And if you're living as though you be risen with Christ, if you then be risen with Christ, then here's what you would do. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. On the earth. See, Paul says, I, I began to count differently. I began to see things differently. If you remember in Philippians 3.8, he said, I found a new win. I found a new measurement for success. You say, what is it, Paul? He said, that I may win Christ. Notice what he says there in Colossians 3, verse 3 and 4. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, here's another one of these phrases you should underline. He says, who is our life shall appear. Then ye shall ye also appear with him in glory. How do you see life? Let me ask you this. What's your goal? See, even in religious circles, remember Paul? Even in religious circles, we can make the religion the goal. Look at my heredity. Look at my nobility. Look at my pedigree, my piety, my morality, my intensity. See, even, even in a church like this, people could make soul winning the goal. And look, I'm all for soul winning. I'm not down on soul winning. I think we should all go soul winning. In fact, I think if you don't go soul winning, you're not right with God. I'm not down on soul winning. But soul winning is not the goal. Bible reading is not the goal. I'm all for Bible reading. I think we should all read the Bible. I think if you... Spend time on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or Instagram and you don't spend time in the Word of God, you're not right with God. I'm just trying to be clear. I'm for Bible reading, but Bible reading is not the goal. I'm for church attendance. 
I think we should go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I don't think you should prophesy. I don't think you should despise prophesying like Paul said. I think we should be faithful to the house of God. But I don't think church attendance is the goal. You say, what's the goal? The goal is God. The goal is to know God and to love God and to fellowship with God and to be close to God. And here's what I know. When God is the goal, you'll go soul winning. When God is the goal, you'll read your Bible. When God is the goal, you'll tithe. When God is the goal, you'll, go, uh, you'll be faithful to church. When God is the goal, you'll live for God. But don't misunderstand the goal. Paul said, I was chasing the wrong thing. But then I realized one day that success is that I may win Christ. So he said, now I learned to count. I count those things as loss. In fact, he says, as dung. That I may win Christ. And I hope the same can be said of you and me. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this passage in Philippians. Thank you for the Apostle Paul really digging in and letting us know and teaching us about his life. Lord, I pray you'd help us to have the right priorities. Paul said, there was things I used to be proud of, but now I have a new perspective. Paul said, there was things I had confidence in, but then I learned to count, to calculate, to reckon. Lord, I pray you would speak to the hearts here today. There's nothing wrong with these things, but help us not to give our hearts to them. Help us not to be chasing them. Help us to learn from Solomon that it's all vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the sun. Like the songwriters wrote, only one life so soon shall pass, only what's done for Christ will last. I pray you'd help us to calculate properly, to count properly, to count the cost, to give our lives for the cause of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.